Well, we'll continue our study in the book of Romans. We're actually going to finish chapter 4 today. So for those that may think we're not making progress, there, we're making progress. We're getting through, but we're almost going to finish. Uh, we will finish chapter 4, and we'll kind of get into chapter 5 next week. But, you know, it, in studying the passage this week, it reminded me of the times where you watch movies. And, and growing up, our, our family was um, very much, uh, we enjoyed movies. It's something that our families did a lot of. Our family did a lot of together, either in the movie theater or at home. Um, when the first Betamax came out, anyone remember the beta? Okay, anyone remember VHS? Okay, that was, that was even after beta. And then we went to the the CDs and the DVDs and the and now Blu-ray and I don't know what else. I guess they're streaming them now. So we've come a long way. But we used to we used to enjoy entertainment. And one of the things that I used to find interesting in movies and TV shows is is when you were watching the movie. If the only thing you had dialogue uh, of the story was between two different characters, many times you missed out on a lot of subtleties. But you remember those movies where you would actually get into the mind of a character. And it was usually them talking to themselves, giving you some insight into what they're thinking as all these events that you're noticing are going around. And, you know, what's interesting today is we're going to have that ability to get into the mind of Abraham. What was he thinking when God made this promise? What was going on in his mind? What was he considering? And we actually get that recorded for us here in, in Romans chapter 4. And before we start um, the lesson this morning, what I want to show you is this. In Romans 4.18, the very last phrase, which it says, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. That's Genesis 15.5. Now, put your finger on verse 18, and now jump down to verse 22. It says, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. In between those two verses are what we're going to look at this morning, part of what we're going to look at, at verse 19 through verse 21. And that's going to give us the insight. Because in Genesis 15, 5, God made a promise. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the promise. And as a result, he was accounted righteousness to his account. Now what we're going to get in verses 19 through 21 is what was Abraham's thought process when he believed? That's what we're going to see. And so that's really the setup for this morning. Um, And the question for us this morning is, are you persuaded? Abraham, we're going to find, was persuaded. And the question for you this morning is, are you persuaded? Uh, Another way to ask that it maybe is, do you believe? What do you believe? What are you trusting in? And we'll see what Abraham was persuaded about as we read. And so in verse 19, we we read this. And what we're going to see in these these three verses is we're really going to see Abraham's thought process. And we're going to see really five descriptions of this thought process. So verse 19, we're going to see this first phrase. He says, and not being weak in faith. Uh, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was, all, uh, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced or fully persuaded that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Strong faith 
is not about the person exercising faith. Strong faith is about the right object. This person in the picture had strong faith that that chair could hold her up, but she didn't know this little jerk was behind her pulling it out. And so her faith all could have been the strongest faith in the world, but because the object wasn't there, it was weak faith in that sense. And so when we look at Abraham in verse 19, we see this first description. He's not being weak in faith. And what it's really saying there by definition is that his faith was not without strength. It was, it was not powerless. There was something to his faith. But what we're going to find is the thing that was really impressive about his faith was the object upon whom he was resting in. That determines strong faith or weak faith because I can have all the faith in the world that this tree out here will save me. I can hug it. I can manicure it. I can trim its branches and I can just be hugging and trusting in this tree. But if the Bible never tells me that that tree is my savior, I got weak faith. And if I'm trusting in a church to save me, the Bible's never called a church your Savior. The Bible calls Jesus Christ your Savior. And see, the church is, if you're trusting in a church to save you, you have weak faith. It doesn't matter how much. We're not talking about quantity. We're talking about what is the object of your faith. And so for Abraham, when when Paul describes that he was not weak in faith, he's basically saying Abraham had the right object. Abraham had, Abraham had a strong object, object upon which to rest. In fact, this is, as we've seen in this chapter, this is the only acceptable response to God's solution for righteousness. It's faith in God's provision through his son, Jesus, who died for us and rose again. In fact, as we look at chapter 4, you'll find either believe or the word faith used 16 times just in this chapter. And if you ever wonder if God is giving you a sign, <laughs> you know, we walk through life and say, oh, I wish God would give me a sign. As we've studied through Romans 4, hopefully this is enough of a sign for you. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to have eternal life. There's no other way to have your sins forgiven. You need to stop working. You need to start trusting. Jesus paid it all. Do we believe that or not? That's the issue. And so Romans 4 brings that out greatly just in the repetition of this word. And so Why was Abraham's faith not weak? Well, because as we read last week, Abraham's faith was in the God who gives life. Abraham's faith was in the God who calls things into existence as though they were, even though they don't exist. And we're going to see a very practical thing that happened in Abraham's life as it relates to child rearing, where if he just took uh, face value, what he could see, what he could feel, what he could sense, if he could just take, uh, you know, a, an inventory of the resources at his disposal, he would have said, no chance, don't believe it, you're lying to me. But we're going to see that he doesn't do that. We're going to understand his thought process as we work through this. We see that the object of Abraham's faith was not sick or weakly, and thus Abraham's faith was not sick or weakly. See, the value of his faith was only lied in the value of his object. What or who was he trusting in? And see, this is one of the reasons as we observe communion this morning and as we preach the gospel is because we're not preaching just a response. I'm not preaching just, just faith to have faith. That's, that's not the answer to sin's problem. The answer to sin's problem is found in a person. His name's Jesus Christ and in what he did, the work that he accomplished, that's what we preach. That's the solution. 
Now, the response to that solution is to agree with God and say, yes, he did it all. I'm trusting in him alone. He died for me in my place, paid the death that I deserved, and God raised him from the dead. God accepted his death on my behalf, and that's the solution. But we're not preaching a response. We're preaching the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ, him crucified, him raised again. That's what we're preaching. That's the message of God that's the power of God unto salvation, according to Romans 1.16. That's the message we preach. We're not just preaching a response. And so when we look at Abraham not being weak in faith, we've got to understand that the underlying reason his faith is not weak is because his object's not weak. His object is strong. His object accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Jesus Christ paid for the penalty of the sins for all the world to those who believe in him. They get the credit for it. Now, they didn't do anything because Jesus paid it all, but they trust in what Jesus did for them, just like God is instructing us in this chapter to do. And we're going to see that the reason he's going through this example of Abraham, we're going to get to the end of chapter four, and he's going to say, it wasn't just written for Abraham, it's written for you also. Person here, sitting here in 2017, it's, this message is for you. The same way Abraham Got righteousness equal to God's to get into heaven is the same way you and I get righteousness. And it's by putting our faith in God's provision, God's solution for sin's problem. And so Abraham's faith was described as not being weak. Later in in verse 19, uh, as we move on in this verse, he says uh, that he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. And um, I already know what some of you are thinking because some of you aren't reading from the New King James and you say, wait a minute, my version says he did consider. Is anyone thinking that? (laughs) But what you're going to find is in the NIV and the NASB and the ESV, um, it it appears to be a contradiction. Okay, did he consider his body or did he not consider? And I think it's one of those questions that as we study the Bible, it's okay to stop and pause and say, what does this mean? Why does this seem to say two things? What's going on? What's, what's happening behind this? Well, as we look at verse 19, um, he's, he's hearkening back to Genesis 17, 17. And if you want to hold your finger there, um, we're going to look at something uh, in Genesis 17, 17. Now, back in Genesis 15, 6, God had made a promise. In Genesis 15, 5, he had said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. At that point in time, Abraham did not have any children. And in verse Genesis 15, 6, it says he believed the Lord in an account and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And so now we jump to Romans 4, 19, which he's pulling out of Genesis 17. When Abraham's 100 years old, Sarah's 90 by this time. This is some 15 years after Genesis 15. And notice what Abraham says here. God makes a promise again to him in verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And Lynn, look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his faith, face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? 
And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And then verse 19, God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so did he consider the the deadness of his body and the deadness of Sarah's womb? Yes, he did. He recognized that. He recognized that was an obstacle. But when it came to trusting God and God's ability to perform what he had promised, he left that out of the equation. That's how I think we put those two things together. And so when we look at this word consider, um, it's an interesting word because it's got an intensive in the Greek. It's got an intensive preposition slapped on in front of the word, okay, to give great intensity to this Greek word naeo, means, meaning to think. And so the idea is Abraham um, did not even contemplate or even allow to enter into his thinking these things as it related to deciding whether or not he was going to trust God or not. Was he going to believe God? He recognized that he was 100. He recognized Sarah was 90. But now he has a decision to make. Is he going to trust in what he can see? Is he going to trust in what he knows? Or is he going to trust in what God Almighty says? And what we're going to see is in Abraham's thinking, these things did not enter into the equation as to whether or not he was going to trust God. So he didn't even consider these things as he made that decision to trust God. And he had a lot of things working against him, his own body. Um, How many hundred-year-old men do you know running around fathering children? I mean, it just doesn't happen too much. It's a very rare occurrence. And even more rare is 90-year-old women having children. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't venture to say it can never happen because I'm sure there's some anecdotal story out there somewhere. But um, that's obviously not normal. That's obviously a situation that was miraculous in nature. And so he didn't even consider the deadness of Sarah's womb as he made this decision whether or not to trust God. And she was 90 years old at this point in time. Abraham did not consider, again, the physical and practical limitations of what God can do. God promised this. The physical limitation says, no, God can't do this. But Abraham believed God. And as a result, it was credited to him as righteousness. And so we see that that response uh, that Abraham was not weak in faith was because everything he could do and see contradicted everything that God was saying, and yet he still chose to trust God. And that's the mindset that we see uh, through Abraham. We get the third description in verse 20. Verse 20 says, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, Uh, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And so we see that third description that he did not waver, okay? He did not go back and forth. You know, this this idea of wavering um, has the idea of judging or distinguishing or separating by deciding. deciding. It it meant to divide. We might say that he wasn't double-minded, you know, one way thinking this way, one day thinking this way, one day thinking this way, or just completely back and forth. And so many of us can relate to that, being double-minded. I mean, have you ever just changed a decision on something just in a real quick span of time and you're just not sure which direction to go? Well, according um, to this passage, when Abraham decided to trust God, he didn't waver. He wasn't double-minded. He, he recognized that either he could believe and trust in himself or he could believe and trust in the word of Almighty God. And he didn't go back and forth in that as we see um, the description here with Paul. Another way we might put it is he 
he didn't try to figure out or judge whether or not God's promise was valid. He simply took God at face value and he believed him. And you know, in like manner, God wants you to do the same. You know, there's so many people today that don't believe, even though the Bible says that salvation is a free gift, you don't have to do anything to earn it. In fact, if you try to earn it, you can't receive the free gift. As much as the Bible communicates that, as much as we say that, there are still people that say, well, no, you got to do something. Come on, there, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. I mean, you got to do something. Even when the plain word of Scripture is there, and, and what are people trusting in? Well, they're trusting in their upbringing. One of the great things about America is that um, we work for what we get, right? We, there's a hard, hopefully, hopefully it keeps continuing in future generations, but there's a work ethic that's appreciated here in our country. That is, you, you work for things, you gain things, and you benefit from them. And then if you, if you do see people getting things for free, usually they squander those things. And we say, ah, you, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You've got to work for what you earn. And, and in some ways, that's a blessing. In some ways, that's a curse as it comes to understanding the gospel. Because it, it's one thing to say, I've got to work for something. I've got to contribute when you're physically able to do it. But when you understand the gospel, and the good news of the gospel, you've got to understand the bad news and says you can't add anything. You can't contribute anything. In fact, when you try to contribute something, you trip in your own way. You get in your own way of receiving the free gift. Many people can't understand that. They can't take God at face value. They say, well, yeah, but I got to do something. I mean, I, I mean, I at least got to go to church, right? I mean, at least got to read my Bible. I got to, I got to at least stop doing this sin and start doing this. And, and there's just mindset. And, and the answer is, is no, you don't have to do that. God is offering a free gift. If it's a free gift, it's free. That means you don't pay anything for it. That would be like paying for a Christmas gift. It's, it's not a Christmas gift then. It, you cannot pay for a Christmas gift. It's, it's either free or it's not. It can't be both. It can't be as some people teach, well, it's free, but it's going to cost you everything. What? Yeah, I'm tall, but I'm short. I'm rich, but I'm poor. Yeah, I'm white, but I'm black. What? This, it's raining, but it's not raining. I mean, how do you put two contradictory things and then just put that down as if that's truth? No, either it's free or you have to pay something for it. It's either or, it's not both and. And for some of us, we've got to accept that. That's what Abraham did. He didn't waver back and forth and say, I don't know. I don't know if I should trust God's promises. I see all these things. And many people need to move in this direction where we just take God at his word, take his word at face value. And he says, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. You won't face the death penalty. You have eternal life. That's what God's word says, and I think he would have us accept that at face value. Every time we disbelieve God, we're wavering in this sense. We're, what we're doing is we're evaluating God's promises. We're putting God on trial and determining whether or not he's trustworthy. Can we, can we really trust him? And we start to evaluate whether or not God can be trusted. Is this really true? I see this. I know this. I've experienced this. Is God really legit? Is what he's saying really true? And every time we waver, that's what we're doing. We're putting God on trial in some ways. You know, typically, as I've stated, our evaluation of God's promises are based upon what we see, what we know, 
what we could potentially see happening through our natural abilities. Notice the focus is on I, as if I had all the knowledge in the world, as I had all the insight into the world, as if I had a full picture. It's like the old illustration, you're on a parade route and all you can see is what's in front of you and you're saying, why is that float stopping? Keep moving. Why are you stopping? You start yelling at the driver. And because you don't see a mile up the road that there's a massive three-car accident that they're trying to clear out so that that float can move. And all you're doing is getting mad at the float, and it's not even his fault. The problem is you don't have a full picture, right? And so when we start to judge things in our life based on a partial picture, then we don't trust God. We evaluate God based on our own partial picture. You know, I think of Abraham, and I, I think of this. Now, now, take this into mind. When Abraham makes this promise, or when God makes this promise to Abraham back in Genesis 15, Abraham's in his 80s already, okay? No children. He's already in his 80s. God makes this promise, and like many of us, when God makes a promise or we see a promise in God's word, we begin to pray for the answer to that promise, when do we typically expect the answer? Like right then, man, you know? (laughs) It's like, you know, come on, genie in the bottle, God, you know, come on, come on, deliver right now. And many times, what does God do? Uh, he waits. And he's not trying to be difficult or mean, but he's got a plan. He's got a time frame. And so what does he do with Abraham? Well, in his 80s, God makes that promise in Genesis 15. What does Abraham do in Genesis 16? Well, he takes the advice of Sarah. He takes Hagar. And they have their own kid. And, God, and now Abraham says, ah, here's my seed. And then in Genesis 17, says, no, Ishmael's not your seed. Abraham was 86 when that happened. And then you get to the end of Genesis 17 and you get in, you start getting into the promise of Isaac and he's a hundred years old and Sarah's 90. So we're talking about just from the time God made the initial promise, we're talking 15 to 20 years that this promise came to be true. Now, what was God doing in the process? Well, I think what he's doing in the process is what we've seen in verse 19. The longer it went, the deader their bodies became. The longer he waited, the more he was going to get credit when Isaac was born. The longer he waited, Abraham and Sarah knew that if God was going to fulfill his promise, it was going to have to be him that did it. And so God systematically over time took all of their hope and any of their natural resources. And, and, and as one author put that I'm stealing his phrase, he shut them up to faith. And what that means is simply this. They had no other place to turn for the fulfillment of that promise. They'd already manipulated, they'd already schemed, they'd already tried multiple things, and now they were at the end of their rope. Only God could do what God said he could do. And you know what? That's a great place to be. And you know that as I break off from the story, do you know that many times that's exactly what God's doing in our lives as we live this life? He's getting you and I to a point where we stop trusting in our own resources, we stop trusting in our own ingenuity, we stop trusting in ourselves, and he shuts us up to where there's only one option now, and that's him. I like this a story that was shared years ago. There was a ministry um, that had a, a church ministry van or a, a ministry. It wasn't a church. It was a Bible, Bible school. But they had a van to pick up students. And uh, the driver of their van was out one day and got into a car accident with another gentleman. And um, the other gentleman says, no, no, we don't need to trade insurances. You didn't do that much damage. Let's just go on our way. 
And um, already you know that's not a good thing to do, right? And so the van driver comes home. There was a little bump on the bumper. No problem. They could get it fixed. It was going to be very cheap. A couple weeks later, they get a letter in the mail, certified letter. It's from the driver of the other car suing this Bible college for something extravagant, ten dollars or $11,000 for the damage on their vehicle. So immediately the board comes together to discuss what they're going to do about it. And um, as they're talking around what they're going to do and the extravagant number, one of the board members says, well, I just want to say something before we pray. And he says, I just want to praise God that that guy's seeking $11,000 and not $1,000. And they were like, what? I mean, you know that guy that shows up in the room that's like, what? What are you talking about? $1,000 would be much better. But he said, no, you know why it's better? Because if it was 1000 we wouldn't be praying. We'd be navigating, manipulating, trying to figure out who we could call to get this amount of money, how we can do this fundraiser, how we can raise it. But because the amount's so extravagant, we have to trust God to work this situation out. And in that sense, God had shut them up to faith. And so he is doing that to Abraham here. And we see that uh, so far that Abraham is not being weak in faith. He hasn't allowed his, the deadness of his body and Sarah's body to um, influence his, his decision to trust the Lord. And then we see that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. We go on in verse 20 and we see this fourth description, which is kind of a, uh, an interesting description. But it says this, uh, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And so this second uh, or this fourth description, the second here in verse 20, is that he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And what we're going to see is this word strengthen is a unique word because it means to be strengthened from within. He was in strengthened. So as he was shut up to faith, as he began trusting in God, God began to do a reciprocal work in his life and grow his faith so that he can continue to trust God going forward in situations like this. And so um, what we see is um, here in the fourth description is, first of all, it's in contrast to being weak in faith. It's in contrast to wavering at God's promises. Uh, What we see is that once Abraham made the decision to believe God, he gained a reciprocal benefit from doing so. And that's what we see in this word, strengthen. There's my battery working. (laughs) So this word strengthen, it's a compound word, meaning to make stronger, vigorous. But here's another thing. There's a lot of prepositions that Paul is throwing onto words here. And, and one of the things that you can see when he writes sometimes is he, he gets really excited and he starts making everything emphatic. And so uh, you see that here because he, he slaps on this preposition N. Um, and so what it has built into it is to be made strong from the inside out or to be in strengthened. So as Abraham believed God, there was a reciprocal benefit that in strengthened him to continue to trust the Lord. We know that this in strengthening came from God himself because it's a passive voice. In other words, Abraham didn't make himself strong. What ends up happening is as he trusts God, God is strengthening him from within. It's not about Abraham. Uh, He's a hero of faith, no doubt. But Abraham was a hero of faith because he had a hero of a God. He had a great God. 
And that's what we see. And as, as we simply step out by faith and begin to trust God in our lives, God is going to reciprocate that and build, strengthen us from within. But it all starts day by day, moment by moment, in the, in the dredges of life, when you're cleaning dishes, when you're cleaning up dog poop, when you're doing the, the garbage of life, whatever it is, the trials of life, it all starts then. Will you trust God? Will you trust yourself? You have a decision to make thousands of times a day. And as you begin to consistently make that decision to trust the Lord, God begins to reciprocate and build strength in you to continue to trust him. And so we see that here in the life of Abraham. And so as Abraham trusted God, God strengthened him from within. And we notice what's the result of this in strengthening? What's the result? We'll look at the end of verse 20. But was strengthened in faith, and then notice the result, giving glory to God. Abraham wasn't now beating himself on the chest and saying, look at me like the NBA basketball players do today. And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm the man. He wasn't doing that. He wasn't saying, look at me, I'm a great man of faith. He was saying, look at my great God. Look at what my great God just did. I'm I'm 100 years old, guys. (laughs) My wife's 90. We just had a baby. Are you, I mean, are you kidding me? That's, that's just incredible news. This is the kind of God that I'm trusting in. And so you see that, that this resulted in him giving glory to God. Going on to the fifth description in verse um, 21. All right. Fifth description, verse 21. Being fully convinced that what he had promised, uh, he was also able to perform. And so we see this description that, that Abraham trusted God, that when God made a promise, God kept his promise. I mean, doesn't that sound so simple? And I'm glad it sounds simple because it is simple. That's as simple as it gets. God makes promises. God keeps promises. John three sixteen, he makes two promises. You should not perish. If you believe in Jesus... You will not perish. That's a promise. God keeps his word. You'll never face the death penalty. Well, what if I sin 20 years from now? What if I murder somebody 30 years from now? God says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he's paid the penalty for every sin you're ever going to commit, ever. And he says if you trust in him, his death will count in your place. You don't have to face that death penalty. That's a promise. That's a promise maker, and that's a promise keeper. Second promise, you have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you possess life that lasts forever. And if God gives you something that lasts forever, can you ever lose it? No, then by definition, he would have to call it something else. He couldn't promise you that you would have eternal life. If it depended upon you, he couldn't guarantee you eternal life. That's why Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace. God giving us something we don't deserve When we put our faith in Christ. Did you deserve it the moment you put your faith in Christ? No. Will you deserve it 20 years from now? No. Will you deserve it on your best day? No. (laughs) That's why we have to be saved by grace. That's why there's only one way to heaven. That's why there's only one way for righteousness. And that's what Paul is communicating here in the book of Romans. And so Abraham was fully convinced of this. And I told you that Paul is getting excited in this section Because now he uses another compound word for this word being fully convinced. And it means to full to the fill. Over 
overwhelmed. He's overwhelmingly assured that what God promises, God can keep. He's overwhelmed, full to the fill by this. And what was he overwhelmed or filled to the full? He was fully persuaded that what God would promise and could promise, he could keep it. That's what he was fully persuaded. Fully convinced, overwhelmingly assured that what God promised, he could actually carry out. In essence, Abraham's faith was not only in what God promised, but also in who, who God was. And uh, I put up there actually who he is because this was also able as a present tense verb. See, that's for you and for me. Is God able still to keep his promises? Yeah. And, and when is he doing that? Well, right now, today, he's able. He continues to remain able is the emphasis there. So just like he promised to Abraham, there's no difference today. He's making a promise to you. If you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will have the righteousness of God and you will have your sins forgiven and you will have eternal life. That's God's promise. That's what he's guaranteeing. Verse 22 is a wrap up, as a conclusion, um, not to the sermon today, but to Paul's thought. Um, some of y'all thought we were getting out early. Verse 22. Uh, and therefore, uh, we see this word therefore kind of indicates that he's making a conclusion to his thought. It was accounted to him as righteousness. And there's uh, that word accounted, it, again, is, is our uh, accounting term that, that Paul keeps using in this chapter, logizomai. He's used it a number of times. He's going to bring it up again in verse 23. But what he's saying is that when, when God uh, saw Abraham's faith, he credited it, he accounted, he wrote it down on Abraham's account, righteousness. This is God's accounting system. How do you get righteousness? Well, many people naturally think you get righteous, righteousness by being righteous, doing good things, doing good works, not doing as many bad works, not doing as many evil things. That's not God's accounting system. That's not how God credits righteousness. And yet half, half of the world or more would tell you that's exactly how you get God's righteousness is being more righteous. No, you're declared righteous. You're justified. I'm justified. Abraham was justified, declared righteous by God the moment he transferred his faith to Jesus Christ. The moment we transfer whatever we're trusting in to Jesus Christ alone, we gain God's righteousness. Again, as Paul has been emphasizing, this is a faith righteousness. Faith righteousness implies that you're trusting in the work of another. You're not trusting in your own works. You're not trusting in law keeping. You're not trusting in good works. You're not trusting in rituals. You're not trusting in any of that. You're trusting in God's provision. This is the faith righteousness. This is how Abraham was accounted righteousness. But as we go on into verse 23, we see an encouraging truth. It's not just superstar Abraham <laughs> that gets saved this way. This is how everybody gets saved. It's for you too. It's not just for Abraham. It's for you too. Verses 23 and 24a, we'll just uh, read this. Now it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him. There's our accounting term as well. But also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So in other words, Abraham's not the only person that gains righteousness this way. We can too. Um, this wasn't a, uh, as we might say, a, a one-off or a one-time 
event where God declared someone righteous in a special occasion, this was designed to be a pattern that would be fulfilled all throughout history. And so we see, even as we look as far back as Genesis 3 and 4, we see that by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. See, even Abel, back in Genesis 4, was saved by grace through faith in this coming deliverer. And, and we looked at that a few weeks ago uh, as we went through just kind of a brief run through on the Old Testament. What we see from this is that this was and is, remains, the only way God can declare somebody righteous. Because it's the only way man can be declared righteous legally in his sight. And when you think about this, and, and it's, this is not just church speak, this is just putting together the truth of God's nature, what he's promised, what he said he was going to do. And here it is. God's holy and just. God gave us a law. There's a penalty to that law. It's sin. But God is also loving. And so as where he's forced by his character to execute justice, he's also forced by his character to be loving and try to prevent us from paying that penalty. And so you've got this dilemma and everybody on planet earth is trying to cover that dilemma and they either overemphasize one characteristic of God, like the love of God. Well, everyone's going to go to heaven because he just loves everybody. Well, then that immediately destroys his justice. And if you don't have a just God, we got a lot bigger problem on our hand than heaven. Because if he's not a just God, that means he doesn't judge fairly, that he won't accept a payment or a sacrifice in your place, and that he can make a promise and change his mind down the road. See, that's a big problem. But then if you overemphasize the justice of God, then nobody can get saved. And so the gospel, this method of righteousness, is the only way God has brought all of these things together. And if you try to add anything to it, subtract anything from it, you throw it all out of whack and you destroy the method. And that's why it's not faith in Christ plus something else. It's faith in Jesus Christ, period. That period is the difference between heaven and hell for many people. Because many people don't have a problem with Jesus Christ. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, I believe in Jesus and keeping the Ten Commandments and getting baptized and going to church. And, And as you start looking at it, you just see comma, 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 comma. And they should have stopped. They should have stopped five commas ago and just put a period right there because when Jesus said it is finished, there's a period after that. He paid it all. Now the question is, do you believe that? Are you persuaded? God's persuaded. How do I know that? Because he raised him from the dead. God says his death can count in your place. Now are you persuaded? Will you simply trust in what God has done for you? That's the message of Romans 4. That's the message of the gospel. This is why this is the only way. This is why grace and faith have to go together. This is why you can't be saved by grace and faith plus works. It doesn't fit. It has to be this way. This is the only way. And I hope that you are persuaded about that this morning. And so we see it's also recorded for us. God doesn't want us confused or missled as to how he declares men righteous. Verse 24. The other thing that we see is that there's no probation period. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 24. He says, but also for us, 
It says, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And what he's saying here, and this, it's interesting because many times the, the verb tense in the Greek, you think that the word imputed is our verb. And so shall be is just kind of communicating a, uh, maybe a future tense aspect to it. But interestingly enough, uh, this word shall be is its own Greek word added to the word imputed. It's not part of that word, and it means to be about or to do or to be impending. The cool thing about this word, it's in the present tense. That, that means right now, at this moment, at this present time, you can be declared righteous. You can, you can have righteousness credited to your account. And you say, well, wait a minute, I didn't even wear my best shirt today. I'm not even wearing a tie. I mean, some, you know, some may not even thrown on deodorant this morning. I, I at least got to be at my best for God to accept me. No, right now, this moment, right where you're seated, you can transfer your trust to Jesus Christ alone. You can believe, you can be persuaded that what Jesus did for you is enough in the sight of God. Enough to pay your penalty for all your sins and enough to credit you with the righteousness that you need to get to heaven. Right there in your seat. Right there in your seat. I don't care if you got a hole in your pocket. I don't care if you got a hole in your dress. Well, I mean, that might not be a good idea. But, I, but uh, in terms of what you need to do, you can do it right where you are. Nothing standing in the way. No probation period. He's not giving you a gift to see how you behave for 20 years and to say, okay, you get to keep it now. No. Right now, at this moment, you can be justified. You can be credited righteousness. The emphasis is the moment one believes they can right now, this minute, be credited or counted as righteous in God's sight. Again, it's not after you clean yourself up. It's not after you get a haircut. It's not after you promise to do better. It's not after you say, well, I need to be in church. I mean, none of those things. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He offers the free gift of salvation to sinners, not people that clean themselves up. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, not good people. <laughs> and so we've got to believe that. I hope we're persuaded by that. It's, um, it's interesting in this text that Paul goes back to the God who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. We, we see that uh, there in verse 24. He, he says, believes in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And why is that interesting? Because in verse 17, one of the things we learn about God is that he gives life to the dead. And he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, that's very important in this area of justification. And you know why? Two reasons. God raised Jesus, giving him life for the dead. And in the area of justification, he can declare you righteous even though you're not righteous in practice all the time. See, God can positionally place you in Jesus Christ. And that's how he declares you righteous. He's not looking down and like covering his eyes and acting. You know, it's like, it's like when you've got a little kid and they draw you a picture. I mean, let's be honest. Love my kids. Pictures, not always the best pictures, right? At, at certain ages. The artistic ability is just not there. You know, I, I got to get really creative to see that this line is a, is a head and this other little dot's an eye. I mean, let's be honest. So um, as, as a dad, what do I do? Do I tell him, ah, that's really not that good boy, ugh. yeah, I wouldn't do that anymore. That's, that's really embarrassing. 
No. As a dad, I, I, I graciously lie to him. So, man, that's great. That's awesome. I love it. That's the, that's the best picture I've ever seen. Am I the only one that does that, by the way? I know. All y'all are caught. All right. But see, God, God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, yeah, they're really, they, he's really still a sinner, but I'm just going to kind of tell him he's righteous. No, no. God is actually declaring you righteous because you will be someday. But see, he can call things that aren't as though they are. Because God knows the end from the beginning. He knows how he's going to end you up, which is glorification, when you're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin and you will be righteous. He's just already declared that to be true of you, even though you don't see it all the time in our life. And so that is the beauty of what we're seeing here in verse 24. And then as he closes out the section, we find out a little bit more about our Lord Jesus. In verse 25, he says, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Paul goes right back to the gospel and he uses this word delivered up. It means to give over. One of the things that's interesting um, is he uses it really in in description of both uh, this being delivered up to his death and also um, raised. Uh, It goes with both Words And so what's interesting about it is it's a point in time he was delivered up. That means that Jesus is not still dying a death every week when we come together for, for communion, for instance. We're, we're recognizing the death that he already died one time. We're not celebrating his present ongoing death. That's not an ongoing thing. This passage says he died once. Aorist tense. He was delivered up once. Point in time in history happened 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha. And it's, and it's truth. That happened in a day in history. That's a historical, historically verifiable event. And that's what he's pointing to here. He was delivered up. But it's also in the passive voice. Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus willingly went to the cross. So we're not disputing that right now. But we also know that there were other actors in delivering Jesus up to die. The first actor, God. God gave Jesus over to be crucified from the divine perspective. We see that in Isaiah 53. It pleased God to crush him. What? But he loved his son. He does love his son, but he loves the world too. And this was the only solution for the world. And so it pleased God to crush him. He gave him up to this death. Romans 8.32 tells us that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so we see that from a divine perspective, God delivered Jesus up. From a human perspective, so did Judas. Judas betrayed him. The Jewish and the Roman leaders also collaborated and put him to death. And so he was delivered up um, by all of these people. And then we see this word because of. Interesting, because we have two uses here. Because of, you'll see, because of our offenses, because of our justification. It's actually the Greek preposition dia, which means through. But what we're going to see from that use is one is retrospective, looking back. One is prospective, looking forward. The first one is retrospective, looking backwards. And what is he looking back at? Well, he was delivered up because of or on account of our offenses, he says there. And so it's because of our offenses, it's because of your sins and my sins that Jesus had to die a criminal's death on the cross. That's the reason. It was through our offenses that put him there. That's the reason he was delivered up. And then we see the second. It was raised because of our justification. 
The second use, again, is perspective, looking forward. How did God complete the justification process? How did he ensure that you and I could be declared righteous? Well, it was because of Jesus' resurrection. It's because he was raised from the life that our justification could be final. Notice again, he was raised because of or through for our justification. To assure and execute this plan of declaring you and I righteous when we put our faith in him, the final nail in the coffin for God to execute that plan was his resurrection. That's what he did. It was because of his resurrection that we can be convinced and persuaded that we can be justified. And so Paul wraps up this section in Romans 4, basically telling us again that God's resurrection was, was or Jesus' resurrection was God's stamp of approval on the fact that his death did indeed pay your penalty for your offenses. And now the question remains as we started, Abraham was persuaded by God's truth and by God's revelation. God is persuaded and convinced by Jesus' sacrifice for you. God accepts it. He's propitiated. He, he raised him from the dead to show you, to give you proof that he has accepted what Jesus has done for you. And now the question remains, are you persuaded? Are you convinced that all you need to do to go to heaven is to put your faith in what Jesus did for you alone? That Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And I hope that you're persuaded this morning. And if you have been persuaded, tell me about it after the service. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, we thank you most importantly for Jesus uh, and what he did for us by dying for our sins and rising again. Uh, we celebrate that message. We know that it's a message that will be talked about often uh, throughout the ages of eternity. Uh, we'll be rejoiced and, and worshiped uh, about often. And um, it's just a just an incredible thing to know that, that you loved us that much, that you took great care uh, to provide a solution to our sin problem and our righteousness problem. And so uh, we're grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.